Hi, this is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about real life locations. How can you use real world geography or architecture or maybe flight plans to inspire your D&D games? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. Before we get into that, as always, I will remind everyone at the end of the show from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be uh, hosting our after party chat. That is a private video chat for all of our patrons. And you could be one of those patrons and join in on the video chat by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Join us at any tier and you'll get access to our Discord server. Do it now. And uh, and within an hour, you'll have everything sorted out and be ready to join us for the after chat. We look forward to that. Yeah. Um, Dan, we, we got, I came up with this topic because uh, last week we were discussing the weather. Um, that always sounds so dull when I put it that way. Last last week on Wandering <laughs> Dems, we talked about the weather. Paul <laughs> um, never does anything about it. <laughs> it's high time. So yeah, yeah. So we were discussing the weather. One of the things we didn't quite get to uh, a topic that I wanted to bring up there was um, we talked about the the look out my my look out the window method when someone asks what's the weather like, and I just look out the window and describe the weather that I see right now. Um, is, is the inverse of sort of when, when the real world pushes itself into your game. And I'm thinking of cases like in our original uh, birthday actual play, when the first actual play ever streamed on this channel, um, in the middle of that, there was a massive thunderstorm, right? So there's lots of thunder and lightning appearing outside, and, and it changes the mood at the table, right? Like, it, it pushes its way into your game. So I kind of wanted to talk about that, and, and more talk about just in general, how, how do we use our real world surroundings to uh, influence and to inspire our games? Cool, cool. I've been, I've been looking forward to this. And you know what, I'll say that it's something that I've wrestled with, with, with my own uh, <clears throat> personal foibles, um, you know, that th- you can go too far. Uh, so I've mm. gone on, you know, research benders of like, I'd like to make this part of my medieval fantasy campaign more realistic and then you know the world is a big place and you wind up you wind up never ending with that with that end of re- realism's research so actually i'm kind of interested in yeah. um getting a little bit of uh, advice or therapy from your viewers about uh like wh- when is when should you stop <laughs> yeah it's interesting because I, I i can remember there are a couple of things that jumped to my mind a couple anecdotes that i'll share i mean one is just um I've certainly, I think we've all been places where you've, you've traveled somewhere and you're walking around and you think, oh my gosh, this would make an amazing D&D adventure. Um, and the, the case for me where that, that hit was I was in England once visiting Skipton Castle and I bought their little booklet, their little, because uh, it had a map of the, of the castle in the middle. And I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing for gaming. I'm going to use this castle. It's a real, a, a real map of a real castle. I can use that in my games. And then when I looked at it with some graph paper and some D&D books by, by my side, I went, Oh my god, this thing's a mess. 
right? The, the way this castle is laid out is actually terrible for gaming, uh, right? So yes. like, I need, this is I my know point how to right translate here. It. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that was tough. On the other hand, here's my other. I think I've probably told this anecdote a few times on this channel, so apologies to our longtime fans who have heard this story many times. But there was a, a time when I was running a, a game, I was going to run a D&D game at uh, Carnage on the Mountain, which is a convention in Vermont in November. And uh, it is literally at the top of a mountain. It's held at a ski lodge. And I was going from the hotel to where they were hosting the games, which was just across this bridge. So you had to go out of the hotel and walk across this bridge that went over a body of water. Uh, it's just a little footbridge. And that, that led to the building where they were holding the games. And November in Vermont, at the top of a mountain, the weather is not always nice. And in this particular case, it's, it really varies too. Like sometimes it's gorgeous and sunny, uh, but in this case, it was sleeting. It was a miserable, terrifying dark. There's no lights, right? So you're just, and all the starlight's gone because it's storming. So it's super dark. You're trying to make your way across this very dimly lit bridge and it's sleeting and I'm just going as quickly as I can and I get across into the place where the game is being run and I'm looking at my adventure and realizing the adventure begins with the party traveling on a road and they're supposed to get ambushed uh, by some hobgoblins before they arrive at their destination at the castle where they're going to meet the king who's going to give them the plot. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? That All I had was this vague, like, they're on the road, they get ambushed, run that fight. And I thought, well, what if they're on the road going through a mountain pass and it's sleeting and it's dark and the hobgoblins use that to their advantage to ambush them? And the nice bit about that is I'm describing it to the players. It's the very first thing. Everyone, we're at a convention, they sit around the table. I'm describing the setting to them and I say, okay, you're traveling through the mountains, through a pass, across a narrow footbridge that someone's built and it's dark and it's sleeting and it's cold and you're wet. And everyone at the table had literally just physically experienced this. So they all, like, they all were immediately immersed in the game, which was wonderful. That's, 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 that's top tier dungeon mastering, Paul. That was, it was, it was a nice moment. And, and I think everyone in that game remembers that moment. It just, that's great. Yeah, it's that's on. great. And there's not enough sleet. There, you know, there, my, my opinion <laughs> is there's generally, there's not enough sleet in fiction in general. Um, uh, and, and I'll confess that I don't have that in my simple weather system either, but yeah. I, as, as someone from Maine, uh, I'm like, I sleet is a, it gets your attention. You gotta, you know, this goes back to like the old writing, uh, idiom of you gotta, you know, use what you know. And, right. um, and I think Dan, that you and I as New Englanders, maybe we take this for granted, but I used to, I used to work at a place with a lot of transplants from California. And, and so I was talking to a lot of people who were like, this was their first experience being in New England ever. And they're working right. at this company. They just come from California. And I was telling them, well, you'll be a real New Englander when you can tell me the difference between sleet and freezing rain. And they, they I think had we, no idea. I think <laughs> no we had idea this conversation on our Discord <laughs> server, actually, I believe. Probably. I think right? we have. I think we have. Um, yeah. yeah. And, it's and then we get a power recently. Some... Sorry, go on. <laughs> I, I was seeing some some online um, conversation um, uh, yesterday, probably on Twitter, uh, and and for me, so I, I, I nowadays I live in uh, I live in New York City, and this is the the southernmost that I've ever lived, 
And I'm not entirely sure I could deal with any place any further south, frankly, because it's already borderline like too hot for me. But of course, so there's a lot of people from the rest of the United States that they come and maybe they visit New York and it's the, 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 the northernmost or easternmost part of the country they've ever been in. And I saw someone saying, wow, it's really humid. I'm visiting New York for the first time. And wow, it's really humid around here. And I'm like, what? It's, what what? Can, can it can it be not human what are you talking about <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah so anyway we don't need to get deep into the weather here that's that was last week uh <laughs> was i want to talk about how how the real world affects and certainly weather that is a, a thing a way that, that yeah, yeah. real life can affect and and inspire your games uh, and i would say for me this probably comes up way more with horror games than um than than D&D. Uh, I'm going to try and tie it all together, but as our viewers know, I'm about to launch on Kickstarter Fearful Ends, my own horror RPG that's uh, coming this fall, very soon, and we're, we're, we're down into it's maybe going to launch in weeks, not months, so uh, you know, stay tuned. I will, I will say a real date very, very soon. <laughs> maybe next week I may even tell you the actual date of the launch of the Kickstarter. Um... Anyway, so my brain is definitely in, in horror mode right now. I'm doing a lot of writing and a lot of a lot of stuff for that. So so I apologize for harping on horror gaming. But I love using real world stuff in my horror games. A lot of my horror scenarios begin with either places I've been or um or or interesting Wikipedia articles about some something strange. Because I like to start with something that's real and is already a little horrific, right? Or a little spooky. Yeah. Right. Start with a setting that is already interesting and then and then sprinkle in some supernatural effects and then it gets really, really weird, right? Um so I've run scenarios in like Cold War Berlin and I ran a scenario um in um uh on on a, a ship of the line during the kind of Napoleonic era. You know, it's stuff that's like this is already terrible. This is already an unpleasant place. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um yeah, so I've done that. Uh, and then you know, so okay, so recently I was editing um, a, a scenario that I've run many times uh, that is set in a college campus in the '80s. And uh, here's an interesting fact: so when I first wrote this, I was like, okay, it's a horror game, it's Cthulhu, like this, it should be Miskatonic University, right? Like that, that's what it should be. And I and I thought that's a trope that's used in a lot of Cthulhu games. Surely there's resources out there. And I went hunting for maps of Miskatonic University. It's like I need okay, yeah. a map of Miskatonic U. And, you know, I found some, but they weren't great. And often they were much more convoluted than I wanted. You know, I just need like a couple locations and it needed to be easy to get around. And looking at these maps, they were always much more involved or uh, just had a lot more detail than I needed. And I was really struggling with it. And then finally, I had this brilliant idea to go and download a map of Connecticut College because that's where I went. And I know that campus by heart. And I lived there for four years. And so I took that and I erased Connecticut College on the top and wrote Miskatonic University. <laughs> and it worked great, right? And one of, the, one of the real benefits there is not just that, okay, I found a nice map, but it's that I remember being there. So anytime a player says, well, how do I get from here to there? Or, you know, what's likely to happen as I'm moving or, or searching this building? What does this building look like? I could just immediately add detail incredibly easily because I had been there. That's great. That's brilliant. And, and so I, I think let me that's... say, have, have, when, you, when you said the, the, the game that you run at a college in the 80s, uh, this is my best gaming experience ever. <laughs> I'll just, as a player, 
right? This this actually was the best gaming experience I've actually ever been in. It was really stunning. And I never thought, I, I hadn't thought about that part of it, but that that had to be among the very tall layer cake of really great elements you had in that game, Paul. It's nice. And, you know, when I go to publish it, it's a little awkward maybe because I'm like, well, I know this campus really well. Should I publish the map or should I publish, or should I just write some text that says, you know, go download a map of a college that you know well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what a what a fascinating what a fascinating uh, a choice that you have to make about that. And of course, this is you know the crux of our uh, live performative uh, hobby slash art form. And uh, similar to theater, there's going to be these things that could only happen in this place with these actors with this group of viewers. With it, with this particular audience, and it will never exactly be exactly like that again. And 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 it, it it's it is this um, uh, eternal struggle in uh, role playing of how do how does the the master DM share this experience in a publication? Uh, it'll never be quite the quite the right thing. And you know we obviously the the earliest. Dungeons of Blackmore and Greyhawk. We we literally never saw them how they actually happened because this is such a this is such a such a huge nut to crack. I I like the idea of giving both, Paul. I actually like the idea of like providing a map and then saying in your text, you know, I use this because this is where I went to school. You should go get a map of of where you went to school and use it the same way. That that's actually probably the best way to do it. You're you're absolutely yeah. right. Of like, here, and let me provide all the all the detail you yeah. need, but also a footnote of the reason, the inspiration for this is this. Yeah. Consider modifying it in this way. That's 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 great advice. That's great advice. Um, I want to I want to throw up a comment here from William, um, who says uh, I have taken to using my area of the country and hometown as the basis for a hex map for D and D, swapping mm -hmm. out. Details for pseudo medieval ones and simplifying details. Dan, we were just discussing just before we went live here that there maybe is a bit of a tradition around exactly this, right? It, it's a, it's a great option, Paul uh, and William, and probably other people. So my my take on this is I feel that you, like I'm I'm thinking mapping, right? I'm thinking I'm thinking yeah. geography the same way, landscape, terrain, kingdoms, and stuff like that. And I think that that was. You know, our our role playing hobby obviously comes out of wargaming, and the, the original D and D book said that it was for medieval war games. And uh, of course, you know, the 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 you go back hundred or hundred and fifty years, we were actually trying to train actual military officers. Was was the origin mm -hmm. of wargaming, and of course, they would tend to use real world terrain to literally train themselves, like what happens if we have an engagement in this area. So I think that there's a long history of using real world maps, actually just using a, a real world topographical map, throwing it down on the table and running a war game on a real world map. So the original, you know, designers certainly had that in their toolkit and they were they were very accustomed to that. But I'll, I'll point this out. Let me let me go back in time. So before before we get to the thing that you that that, mm -hmm. that we both really want to talk about, I'll mm -hmm. I'll say the first um the first Dragon Magazine that I ever got, the very first issue that I ever got was uh, Dragon Magazine number 56 uh, from, I think, December 1980, I think, is what is is when I first got my hands on a, on a Dragon Magazine, I think. 
And it's got, uh, I get December 1981, I guess. It's got a wonderful cover by Phil Foglio with the um, What's Up with D&D characters on the cover as a cartoon, which I love to death. And in that, one of the things that caught my eye in that issue is that there's an article by William Hamblin. I have an image from the first page of this for what it's worth. And of course, Dragon articles at the time were very text heavy. So it's not gonna, this, this goes on like this for about four pages. But it's this article called Map Hazard, Not Haphazard, and the recommendation to use, kind of like William was saying, real topographic maps to fill out fantasy worlds. And again, this is this is very highly technical and very highly detailed and really probably would blow the minds of like some some maybe newer players in the last 10 or 20 years. And so this really goes into what kinds of topographic maps are publicly available through the US government in different department agencies and goes through the different scales that are available. You can get, you can get one to 24,000 scale, you can get to one to uh, 62,000 scale. What, what are the different contour details? Which ones does he recommend for different actions and things like that? And then, um, and, and again says, you know, why use something crazy? Why use something insane where you can just grab a real world map, like William's talking about, rename some stuff, shrink the mm -hmm. cities. And then he actually goes, I think it's like two pages here about specific government agencies and addresses and, and procedures of how you how you order these maps from uh, the US Geological Survey or the Defense Mapping Agency or the NOAA. And yeah. um, and I when, when I first got this, I just want to point out, of course, that that yeah. sounds crazy to us now, but of course, like exactly. we have to throw our brains back to the time period when there was no internet. There was no internet, right? How do you get? There's these no maps? internet. There's no Google Maps, <laughs> right? None yeah. of the, none of this is is publicly available. And so, th to me, at the time, 1981, this just you know blew my mind. Like, oh my god, I can get real world maps. And he he actually winds up recommending getting um, aeronautical maps from the NOAA. And they're 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 one to a million scale. They're pretty big. Uh, they're they're four by four feet in size. Uh, they only cost like two dollars each. Uh, they're really cheap because quote every pilot needs one, so they're mass produced really cheaply, and you can get them for about two dollars. And it will only take when 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 you get to order them by post, right? You got to fill out a particular form, send your money in, and and you'll get them in only four to eight weeks. Yeah, which was. Standard standard shipping time back then, right? Please allow for yeah, this right. eight weeks uh, delivery. Yep, yeah, reasonable. right, right, totally reasonable, exactly. <laughs> right. And I, and, and where's so my Amazon so Prime, Dan? <laughs> I will never. Delivery? Let me. This is in all honesty, everybody. This is actually a thing that Paul and I actually have trouble interacting with because I will never get used to that. In my, I will. I, I don't care if I live another hundred years. I will never get used to Amazon delivering something in like forty-eight hours. It just doesn't seem right. I actually, it's, I'm actually irritated that Amazon delivers stuff too soon. Seriously, right? I'm like, well, that's not right. How? What the fuck did they have to do to make that happen? There had to be some kind of anyway. Okay. Anyway, you know what? It's better now. Okay, but generally speaking, it's better now. Yeah, Everything's yeah. wonderful. Better, better than twenty first century weeks for sure. Right. Uh, and I will say, so I made a little bit of a joke at the top of the show is is um, what uh, William Hamblin here says is he does wind up among the different options. He does recommend getting these aeronautical maps just because they're big and they're, they're, they're cheap. And he says, you will have to ignore all the actual flight path data on it 
because that's not going to be relevant to your fantasy campaign unless you learn to read them and, yes, use them for dragon flight paths. <laughs> it's a parenthetical option he's got in there. So it could you, you could do that. And and I briefly I briefly considered that, right? So I spent quite a bit of time. I spent quite a bit of time in my life, you know, studying real-world maps. I, I don't think I actually ordered any myself, but my university uh, library had stock of them. So I actually spent quite a number of hours pulling them out of these big drawers that they had yeah. and pouring over these four by four topographical maps from the government, thinking about how to make my my campaign more realistic, quote unquote. Um, and uh, that that article had a big made a big impact on me for the first Dragon magazine that I ever got. Um, and so let's talk about let's talk about some some examples of, of, of other folks that we know that have, have done that. And the first one that came to mind, uh, you know, for me this, uh, this weekend was, uh, we know that Dave Arneson based his first fantasy campaign. And he, he initially called the map, the Northern marches. And the, the top of what you're seeing right now is a, a I guess a colored version of, I think the earliest Dave Arneson map that we know of. And so initially this was called the Northern Marches and later he called it Blackmore. And uh, he, uh, he talks about this in his first fantasy campaign publication. And he says, uh, in starting my campaign, I reserved a small area out of the center of the Great Kingdom map from the Castle and Crusade Society. Um, and the basic campaign area reproduced on a large map sheet outside, this, outside the book that we're reading currently was originally drawn from some old Dutch maps much of the rationale and the scale was based on data found with the Dutch maps. Later, the game moved south, and then we used the outdoor survival map when we moved south off this piece, but that was a different phase of the campaign. And so um, you can see here the, the top is, is Dave Arneson's uh, original Northern Marches, where Blackmore was set, and the bottom is a, uh, an old map of Holland, um, that was, I think, I think found by James Mishler, I believe. I could be wrong about that. A lot of great work to put this stuff together by our friends Griff Morgan and Dan Boggs and um, Zach Howard kind of have been conversing about this years ago. And you can see this, this, this map of Holland on the bottom. Kind of, it's not perfect, but kind of the coastlines and the rivers kind of follow at least this inspiration. In particular, the big northern bay at the top has pretty much the same curve to it. There's this peninsula on the top left, which is which is very very similar. Um, there's kind of a coastline uh, between the two that's kind of similar, and then the rivers kind of follow sort of the same the same kind of direction more or less. The other parts are, are you know bigger or change or different terrain, but it's it's that's a pretty good guess that that's where uh, our first ever fantasy campaign comes from is from probably yeah. that that piece of Holland right there. I feel like, and I feel like that's it's a pretty clever way of of building a large scale wilderness map, uh, especially because you know unless you are a, a surveyor or uh, you know a pilot or somebody who's used to seeing a lot of terrain. I know it's something that I've fallen into is just taking the blank piece of paper and trying to draw in some mountains and some hills and some forests and like does it follow the way that actual like you know natural science would make. Right, the land's shape. Right. I don't know. Maybe did I make some terrible choices just because I wanted a desert somewhere on my right? That doesn't make sense. Uh, is the scale correct for the level of climate change I'm expecting from point yep. A to point B? 
Uh, yep. Right. So yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot of variables when you're inventing from scratch, and so like just taking a known area, I think, is is pretty clever. Pretty clever. And I will say, as, as part as as part of my research, right? And I and and I was laughing about this, and I got Paul laughing about this. Um, uh, the the person, uh, the the particular blog that kind of put this together, uh, Paleologos's blog, I think OSR Grimoire uh, has a nice um, uh, review of of putting these pieces together. And at the end of his blog on this, he. Uh, <laughs> helpfully reminded us that one of the best places you can get information about this is when we interviewed Dan Boggs in season one of Wandering DMs. Uh, Dan, Dan conveniently talked about the generation of this Northern Marches map. Um, so I've got a link uh, in the description on YouTube to this show. You can go back and see season one when Dan Boggs was here talking about their, their research into this. So uh, again, hat tip to everybody like Dan uh, who was working on that. It is. I, and, I think you and, and I both encountered encounter this. It's it's I both infuriating and that specific part. And research brings you right back to your own material, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I gotta right. That was part of that conversation. That was thanks. Yeah. Good. Um, I, we're glad that that was able to help folks. And yeah, and so so some some of the folks in in the chat are reminding us about things we maybe talked about. And uh, let me throw up a comment by Eric Wolbrender actually. So so Eric's remembering uh, reminding us several fantasy authors do this. Uh, Robin Hobb took Alaska for inspiration. George R. R. Martin flipped Ireland for his map. I actually didn't know that. And of course, the thing that I think is slightly not not quite as well. Um, established, but I, 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 and if someone has better data on this, we'd, we'd love to see it, is, of course, uh, Dave Arneson's comment about his original map said that he was taking a slice of the larger scale Great Kingdom map um, that was that he's not naming Gary Gygax at this time, but it was Gygax that created the Great Kingdom map for the Castles and Crusade Society, and, and Arneson was was taking control of like the northern slice of it for his for his campaign. Um, and so, if I if you look at like the early version of the Great Kingdom map, which ultimately turned into the Greyhawk map that many people know very well, uh, I, I hear that Gary also based that topology sort of on some real world thing. And I I'd heard that um, I guess Paul, you were remembering that it was maybe Europe. Flipped 180, or I remembered something yeah, I flipped so. 180. I Unfortunately, I don't. I don't really remember precisely. Um, and then you know, this was it's yeah, hard for hard for yeah. Dan and I were talking about this, and, and unfortunately, yeah. I can't, can't really attribute where this came from. So this might be pure hearsay, right. but um, but yeah, I seem to recall that that it was, it was some part of. I'll say, looking the, at it this lo looking at this morning myself, looking at if and I looking at Gary's original Great Kingdom map myself, it. This morning, it, it kind of looks to my eye like if you take a slice of the northern Wisconsin coastline, and of course he's he's in Wisconsin at the time that he's designing this. And, and to my eye, if you just if you just kind of slice off the the northern uh, part of Wisconsin that's on the Great Lakes, and maybe you cut off the bit of Michigan that's attached, it looks quite a bit like his like his Great Kingdom map to my amateur eye. And in fact. The mountain ranges kind of sort of look like they're sitting on the border of Wisconsin with Minnesota, but um, that could I could be hallucinating possibly, um, and maybe someone knows better than that. But to my eye, basically, it just looks like 
non-rotated northern part of Wisconsin. Um, so there's so clearly there's a there's a there's a great tradition of grabbing a real world map and like you're saying, Paul, maybe adding some extra terrain or more deserts or something to kind of spice it up, perhaps. And uh, if if you're doing that, you're you're in a long storied tradition of of being inspired by by real world uh, topology. Yeah, I think that's. Um... It's it's nice it's nice to at least have some some reassurance that your that your topology is natural or even possible. I'm sure that younger me wrote some pretty insane maps with rivers going directions they should never go, or you know, uh, <laughs> you know, frozen tundra impossibly close to scalding hot desert. I don't know. I am no I'm no geologist, so <laughs> unfortunately. Now the funny thing much. is, I'm sure there are actual geologists there that became geologists because of their D and D campaign. I'm oh. I'm I I feel that's a pretty confident guess that some people got into geology in order to answer this question. <laughs> um. So I was trying to think of uh, other cases. Specifically, I was trying. You know, a lot of my a lot of my examples are are. Are, as I mentioned, but I was trying to think of D and D examples where real world influenced uh, the material. I have one that's, that's that's a lot newer, but is is OSR that came to mind, um, which is uh, Stone Sky Delve, uh, an adventure by Joseph Browning. Uh, it was written for Osric. It was um, uh, run as a module, as a uh, uh, sorry, as a tournament at uh, mm -hmm. Gen Con 2010. I want to say, and I think I got to play it at that time. Uh, I own a copy of this. It's a great adventure, and I'm about to spoil it for everyone. So I'm dragging my heels here a little bit. Spoiler alert: I'm going to ruin Stone Sky Dell for you in a minute. Um, it's broken into two parts. I think the first part is fantastic, and the second part is weak. Um, but the first part basically involves a cavernous um, delve. Right, they, you're, you're having to go through these natural caverns, and the, what the gimmick is when you first open it up, there are two maps. One is a top-down map and one is a side view map because from what I understand, this was inspired by real world spelunking reports. And so somebody, you know, either was a spelunker or watched videos on spelunking. And, and I believe this is based on, the, on a real set of, ca of caverns somewhere. And so it has a lot of three-dimensional cavern movement that is not stuff you would normally think of when you're making your D&D &D adventure set in a bunch of caves, right? All of our cavernous D&D &D adventures always seem to end up in caves that have conveniently flat floors and, you know, ceilings that are eight to 10 feet above our heads. And we forget that, like, no, there are probably places where it's maybe six inches of clearance and you've got to do your best to crawl through it. Or there's insane, you know, the middle of this cavern rises up to a point because there's just a massive stalagmite in the center of the cavern or, or there's a shelf or there's a, you know, there's water, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. So, so that's, I, I, it's a great, it's a great resource. It's very amusing. I find to run for players and you start describing the complex cave geometry, a really great way to piss off your mapper um, because it's nigh impossible to map this thing. Uh, at least, at least, you know, uh, correctly, right? You you can you can do it kind yeah, of yeah. abstractly. This cavern leads to that cavern leads to that cavern. You can kind of do it a little abstractly, but trying to actually map this onto graph paper is basically not. Uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> nice. 
It sounds like you had a great time playing through that with with some of this up and down type action. I super enjoyed it. It's it's very clever, um, and it and it adds some again. It's okay, so I'm going to spoil some more here, but it adds some fantasy elements. Like there's a whole part of like there's there's water. There's a waterfall that's running through one um, one high up cavern, and the water trickles down. And then there's a cavern where it's super muddy because water is pooling. And then there's a whole part that's potentially underwater. And all of this is because if you climb up to the source, you will discover a dead adventurer who has a, an Everfull bottle in his pack that Great. is tipped over. Great. Great. <laughs> Which is just Great. delightful for me. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Totally changed the ecosystem because you, you died up there and, and your, your Everfull bottle of water. That's great. <laughs> I love that's that. That's nifty. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I've run that one a couple of times. Again, I, I'm a little disappointed in the second half of the module, so I tend to only run run the first half. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's good. Maybe okay, so let's let's talk criticisms about mm -hmm. places where this might not work quite so perfectly. And let me let me throw up a, a question by David Heron David Heron about 20 minutes ago, actually. Um, so Paul, you were talking about um, using the castle map for the place that you were visiting in England. And you said, I looked at it and said, this would be terrible as an actual map. What, and David's asking, well, what made that map terrible in particular? Yeah, um, it's very strange because first of all, you have a lot of rooms that are very weird dimensions. You have a lot of cases of incredibly thick walls, which is true, right? Which is often not correct in our D&D maps, right? The, the, the walls are aligned, or maybe if you're lucky, a, a cell of the graph. And in fact, the real world walls of castles are incredibly thick often, um, which, which throws off your ability to, um, to right? Like part of, the, part of the fun, I think, of mapping is you're drawing the map and you can start to intuit, aha, there's something missing over here. Um, we should go look for secret doors over here. And that's very hard to do when nothing's at a right angle and all the walls are you know, 10 to 15 feet thick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, eh, I don't know. There's a lot of dead space. Um, and then also just, um, uh, I'm trying to remember this specifically. I wish I, I remembered to just grab that little booklet and have it by my side. But just the, the layout was very strange and the rooms weren't always obvious what they were for. Um, and so adapting it into, into an adventure was tricky. I hear that. I hear that. It's interesting because you're reminding me, and I'm trying to grab my uh, copy of uh, Greg Svensson's Lost uh, uh, Dungeons of Tonisborg, and it, you're making me remember, you know, thinking about Dave Arneson's first fantasy campaign with, with the Blackmore Dungeon. Um, the, the dungeons, as they were mapped out and presented by, by Judges Guild at the time, kind of had that sensibility to it. And if I just look at... Um, like here's here's all level from from Tonisborg in the same kind of style. I kind of get that sensibility of this. Boy, there's a lot of dead space. I mean, actually, here's part here's part of the dungeon down here. Hopefully, I'm not uh, revealing too much here. Um, but there's there's a there's a ton of dead spells, and, and actually, most of the corridors tend to be about 45 degree degrees. And it's certainly not a style of mapping that I'm used to. It look reminds me a lot of the Blackmore maps that we see. Um, so maybe that's another element that they were taking from, from real life inspiration um, before we awesome. settled on the styles that we're kind of accustomed to. Possible. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I would say though, ultimately at that point, 
how, how is this helpful, right? How is this helpful to you running a game? Is it helpful? Uh, is it just slowing down your game? I, I think for me, what's more helpful is having physically been there and being able to draw to mind, oh, well, I know this is here and this is why this is here or what this looks like and feels like. You can just get, like possibly the, the benefit of exploring an actual real life castle is that when they're in there, it's when you're, when you're running your game, it's maybe a little easier to describe, well, this is what it feels like. This is what the stonework looks like. This is what it feels like to yeah. climb these stairs. This is how narrow it is, right? Like you just have a sense because you can draw into memory what it felt like for you personally to go explore that space. I like this. I like this a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you when we first came up with this idea, you were talking about the couple of videos that I think when we were first making the channel and they're very they're very indie. <laughs> they're not they're not super well produced. But the couple of videos that I made um, and this was this was pre covid and we, we we had the name wandering DMs, obviously. And, and our, our initial plan was to was to do more um, touring type type uh, type activities. And so I uh, was fortunate on one of my rare vacations to go to Peru for the first time and was really blown away by geography that I was personally unaccustomed to and just the shape of mountains that look different from the old mountains that I grew up with. Um, and, uh, you know, old uh, uh, Mayan architecture um, that was very new to me. And so I made a, a series of very short videos early on on the channel here about things you could use in you know, Peru to inspire your, your games include like old, you know, stair work, stone stair work and what that would look like and what it's like getting up an actually really high mountain um, were yeah. things that I was at the, you know, really inspired to bring into my D&D games. And those, those bits and pieces and flavor and what things look like and sound like and smell like, um, you know, maybe in certain circumstances are more valuable than me actually just picking up a map of Peru and trying to use that for, for a game platform. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we were talking earlier about um, how, as New Englanders, maybe we know a little bit more about the different kinds of uh, frozen precipitation than others. Uh, but it's also interesting to think of what, what are we not exposed to? And, and I was recently driving through the Berkshires and thinking about like, oh, how how beautiful this is with these big, you know, mountains on the, on the, uh, on the horizon. And it's totally unlike what I'm used to because I grew up and have always lived very yep. close to the coast and I'm just not used to that level of terrain difference. And then I was reminded that like, this is the green mountains, like people who live in real rocky mountainous terrain would probably laugh at me calling these the mountains, right? These are, these are hills yep. at best. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, fascinating. Um, and this, that's why, so I'll give you one other example of where this, where this hit me very recently. Like I said, I was out in the Berkshires. I went to a, a museum called Masmoka, which is a modern art uh, gallery. And um, it is built in, it's, it's an old converted mill building. So this big old rambling um, mill out there that they have converted into galleries. And there's even an exhibit there that talks that, that has photographs of the interior of the mill building itself just prior to that conversion. So it's like it had, it was no longer being used for its original intended function and it was a little derelict and, and this photographer managed to get permission to go in and photograph it a bunch uh, without even knowing that eventually it was going to get converted into an art gallery. So amusingly now, now, his, now his art <laughs> of the photos of the old building are in the building, which is kind of, it was pretty neat. Um, 
So uh, as I as I maybe have mentioned, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the stream or not. Um, one of the recent additions to Fearful Ends coming soon to Kickstarter is I put a sample scenario in the back of the book for folks, and I have recently recorded an actual play of myself and a few uh, friends of the stream playing that sample scenario, so that folks who get the game can follow along and 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 really get come to grips with how the game wow. is played. That that sample scenario is set in an old mill building because I, I've been to one, obviously, we just talked about the gallery. I've also worked in one. I've, I've actually had multiple jobs where the offices were in old converted mill buildings. And those are, yeah, in New England, those are a dime a dozen, that's, they're everywhere. That's very New England. <laughs> that's that's yeah, extremely yeah. New England, I will say. If... And, and if you've been in one of these buildings, yeah, they're a little creepy and weird. They, they, the, the layout isn't always obvious. Uh, multiple buildings are sometimes attached to each other with weird sky bridges and, um, you know, occasionally you bump into bricked up uh, windows with no reason why, and other like just very strange, strange. <laughs> the the one I worked in, I remember, had a network of big red pipes everywhere, and there was one mm -hmm. point where I was sitting in a cubicle, and there was literally like a, an eight inch diameter metal painted bright red pipe that went floor to ceiling right next to me, and it just it was there next to my desk, and it was just a feature. Until one day, suddenly it made a lot of noise, and I remember like, "Why is that all this, this <laughs> rushing noise?" And I reach over and touch it, and it's ice cold. It's ice, ice cold, and I realized that there must be a lot of water moving through this pipe right now, and I have no idea why. It, I'm like, I've I've worked here for months. This has never happened. What is going on? Yeah. So it's it's it was a bizarre, you know, it's a bizarre thing. And it's so bizarre that I was like, well, I got to put that in my game. So, so that sample scenario has an Great. old mill building that's very much inspired by the one I lived in or worked in rather oh. that has weird old metal pipe work that is unclear what its purpose is. Oh. I've got, okay, I'm just going to go on a minute long jog here for, for, for people that, are, that, that didn't grow up in New England that, you know, obviously the East Coast used to be this enormous manufacturing hub uh, 100 years ago. Uh, and so, so all the rivers in the cities have these giant brick, you know, manufacturing mills like we're talking about here. More or less, they all got wiped out in the Depression. So in the Depression, just, just wiped out all those businesses totally. So at least for me, growing up in New England, uh, I grew up before they started to get reused. They were just all empty when I was growing up. So my just sense of, of my surroundings is like all the rivers are surrounded by giant empty brick buildings. And I yep. never thought to ask, like, why are these giant unused brick buildings everywhere? That was just like <laughs> part of the geography that I grew up with. And, you know, a decade or two later, when they started to reuse them, I was like, oh, what a what a weird idea using those giant brick buildings. I, I never <laughs> that never occurred to me that you could possibly do that. I just thought they were empty forever before me and after me. Um, yeah. So it's I, I feel like it's one of these things, you know, you talked about writing what you know. And for me. You just a little bit of travel. I don't do it very often, but just a little bit of travel out of my own context is super, super valuable um, because, you know, my my thesis is if I was a fish, I wouldn't know what to say about water. I, I probably <laughs> wouldn't be conscious of it and I wouldn't be aware of it and I wouldn't have a whole lot to say about water because it would just be like that's my space, right? And I think there's some poet that that said, you know, the people that really appreciate a city like New York the best are people that have moved here from away. 
And mm. I think there's I think there's a, a lot of value of just a, 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 even a little bit of travel to both see something and, and, you know, actually smell and hear something that you haven't grown up with and then be able to appreciate what it's like at your home place a little bit more with fresh eyes, frankly. Um, and I think it, I think it really helps to, to see like what, what what do you know? You might not know it except in contrast with the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I and I, and I'd say, you know, when you're traveling around, whether it's locally or or someplace very remote, um, you know, keep a notebook on you or have your cell phone ready to take some photos and and just have it in your brain. Because I know that's when you were in Peru. I remember Dan, you were you took a lot of video because it was in your head of like, oh, maybe I can maybe there's some things here I can use for the channel. And then suddenly you, you start thinking through that that gaming lens. And suddenly everything can be used for gaming, right? Everything. Yes. That, yeah. Well, yeah. well put. Well put. And I will yeah. say the other thing we do, and I don't know if I, I recommend this for everybody, but when 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 my partner Isabel and I go someplace, we specifically look for uh, goals, like exploratory goals that are not known tourist sites. So we will look up the gravesite of an author that's important to one of us that other people don't know about. It could be a scientist or a writer or somebody like that, or a, a landmark uh, that nobody else knows about. And we're, we'll, we, and it's a little bit of an adventure. We've had we've had adventures going to find this thing that's not on any map that that you know locals don't know to direct you to. Uh, it's it, it tour guide tour groups don't go there, and we've actually had really uh, interesting um, experiences with our own little adventures, finding places that other people don't go to. Um, uh, so you can make it, you can make a little adventure out of that yourself, uh, doing something that, that isn't a known tourist landmark. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, things that are not tourist attractions are, I think, often just as if not better, like I'm talking about the old mill buildings, right? Like, it, right, every time I'm in one of those old buildings, they can't help but think like, yes, this would be a great setting for a horror movie or a horror game. This, right. this would be fantastic. Uh, I'm also reminded of the anecdote. Um, I can't remember where this comes from, so I apologize, but probably it's in the book Cheers Gary or or some other interviews with Gary Gygax from back in the day. But when he talks about his childhood and the, the formative memories that would lead to inventing Dungeons and Dragons, he often tells a story, I think, of exploring an old abandoned uh, mental asylum. Does, does that right. strike your memory, Dan? Yeah, there's definitely a story that, yeah. right? Yeah, so I think okay. if you, you do a little little searching, you can clearly find Gygax reminiscing about, you know, being a, a, a young kid, you know, and exploring his surroundings and there being an old abandoned mental asylum nearby and he would go explore it and it was super creepy and weird and, and, and you know, full of mystery and danger. And that's if that's not what a dungeon crawl is, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, when... when like that comes up like I, I do think of uh, you know everybody has these formative experience I do think of uh, the writer uh, Stephen Donaldson who wrote the uh, the Thomas Covenant books which is kind of a riff play on Lord of the Rings um, mm. who actually grew his father was a doctor in India and, and uh, Donaldson actually grew up uh, with his with his father in a leprosy asylum taking care of people with leprosy or what we'd call Hansen's disease now which obviously informed the sensibility of those books to a to a degree that if he if you weren't if you weren't steeped in that world you wouldn't have those kinds of those kinds of details to add to your fantasy world. 
totally. Hmm. Let me make a couple comments before we get done. Okay, so yeah. I will confess, right, that I for many years I was very deep into studying real world maps and topography. Um, you know, off the the the, the direction pointed at by Dave Arnes and Gary Gygax and early war gamers. And I actually have stepped a little bit back from that. Um, and like for one example, there was a point where I thought I'm gonna use a, a, a topographical map following the, the advice from William Hamblin and Dragon 56. I'm gonna take a topographical map of Maine. And I'm going to use that as kind of a northern, uh, you know, Northlands Viking type campaign. And I get the map and I lay it out. And here's, you know, it's hundreds of miles. And here's more or less the topography of Maine. Wooded mountains. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of miles, right? Hundreds of miles of wooded mountains. And, and, and there's some lakes. And there's, after the lakes, there's more mountains with woods. And after the mountain, there's more lakes and rivers. And more rivers and lakes and mountains and woods. Just hundreds and hundreds of miles. So if you had a campaign there, it would be real world maps tend to be pretty homogenous. They tend to be pretty mm -hmm. homogenous. They tend to get like a big chunk of territory that's kind of sort of the same thing all the way through it. And in contrast, when I've, you know, in kind of more recent years, and we started playing around with, for example, the outdoor survival map, which was referenced in original D&D. And of course, we're always looking at the outdoor survival map all the time when the show's happening, because we use it as the frame <laughs> around the show. Kind of like it's the water for fish. So you might, you might stop being aware of it at some point, but we're looking at the outdoor survival map all the time. And just in this little snippet, for example, that's in front of us right now, you can see it's got plains and woods and mountains and some volcanoes and some deserts and uh, rivers and river passes and some swamps all in one fairly small area. And I've found that it, it's, it's interesting gameplay. It, 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 it's, it's probably highly unrealistic, but it does have interesting game choices that the players have to make. Of do, we, do we try to cross these mountains, which are slow and dangerous, but short? Do we go around it in the plains, which is, do, do, we, do we try to go around it or do we try to cut over this branch of the mountains, which is going to be a little bit dangerous? Do we get, how do we get to the other side of that swamp? Do you take the forest that's on one side or do you take the hills that's on the other side? And so I think I've actually become a little bit more uh, embracing of a, a fantasy map that does have a non-natural amount of variety because it does give some interesting game choices rather than just like you're gonna be going for hundreds of miles in the same terrain no matter what direction you go in. Um, so, and we're all fighting in different directions, but for me, I had to, at some point, I had to get a little bit away from the maniacal real world geology research mm -hmm. that I was doing mm -hmm. and kind of think about how does this actually play out at the table and honestly, I'm glad outdoor survival was there because it gave me it gave me some important lessons. The outdoor survival board is actually really nice. I, I would say it's not surprising it to me that they that they latched onto it to use in in whether it was the, the a war game, you know, territory map or or just for D and D uh, exploration of the outdoors. Uh, it's got a nice level of variety in it and a, a lot of good choices. Um, you know, the other the other one that always comes to my mind, frankly, is the map. That's included in Barbarian Prince. Uh, yep. I, I love yep. that map. I would use that map over and over again for for a D and D campaign. I think it would work super well. Yeah, is it highly realistic? No. Um, I'm sure it was invented 
more for gameplay purposes than for for you know simulating reality. Um, yeah, again, for me, like I think that it is a nice idea basing your map on a real world map, if nothing else, for giving you a starting yeah. point, right? It's kind of yeah. like man, dare draw. Yeah, I, I I don't know if I even want to draw this comparison, but it's kind of like how we see a lot of people using uh, AI to write text these days, right? It's not that AI is writing all of your text for you, but you use it as a first pass, as a starting point, and you get, you know, a reasonably good thing, you know, some material to begin with that you can then get in there and edit and move around and whatnot. So I might look at it that way of, like, get a real-world map as an initial inspiration point, but then don't be, a, don't be scared to muck with it. I like that. And I recall, I think, one of my creative writing uh, professors in college saying, you know, the best the best writers intelligently steal. Which mm. I think which I think is like you're 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 reading you're reading a lot. You should know a lot about the real world. And then you can use that as fodder to riff on um, in your own creations. Um, and I, th I think knowing I know something some of that stuff to add is not bad. And in particular, if you can kind of meet your your players' intuitions about where rivers should run or where the swamp should be or what the climate should be like, is kind of nice. Um, but you do want to make it, you know, gameable. And I will say, the more you know, the more I'm in a a, a, a window where it makes sense for things to be realistic, like medieval war game, right? You're 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 above land. Um, I actually, for my initial terrain, like in Book of War, I actually used Google Maps. I could zoom in on a place, get the scale right, and that's actually where the the initial terrain pieces for my for my indie war game came from. Actually, was was Google Maps, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, so that that's all great. But as you get into slightly more fantastic places, like a ruined castle, or a dungeon, or caves, or something like that. Um, the real world stuff, when I've tried to use it directly, just like your castle in England, has, has kind of let me down. And part of what happens is I find, like, with a, with a, um, with a, I've tried to use a cathedral for a dungeon. I've tried to use a university map, actually. I've tried to use real world mines, and they tend to be too regular, right? Mm -hmm. So a cathedral or a monastery. Like, like, let's say a real world monastery tends to have like about a hundred little cubby holes for residences after another. And it's incredibly predictable, right? It was laid out by a, you know, real world architect to be easy to find your way around. And if I use a real world mine, it tends to be the same kind of like giant 40 by 40 square room duplicated 200 times one after the other. Um, and I feel like that that level of predictability isn't exactly the the theme that I want in my in my games. So I find that for for interesting, mysterious, unpredictable variety, I need to do something else. But I can use it as like inspiration of like what's you know what's the overall shape, size, scale of these kinds of things as a starting point. Dan, we're we're about out of time, so I'm about to call for final thoughts. But I'm going to uh, completely flip our format on you and throw you by going first. I'm going to give you my final thoughts, and I'm going to let you wrap this up, Dan. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, so here are my final thoughts on using real-world inspiration. For me, uh, yes, I agree that real-world inspiration for a starting point when you're talking about large-scale stuff is, is great. It's a good use of it. Uh, but for me, the best use of real-world inspiration is the zoom in. The closer you get to just the the building by building or or details of what is the feel, what is the air like, what is the 
you know, something that gives the player more immersion in, in, in descriptive detail that probably doesn't even matter to gameplay. That's where I personally really love it. You mentioned using Google Maps, and I'll throw out one other anecdote, which I totally forgot until you mentioned it. I once ran a game of All Flesh Must Be Eaten, which is a post-apocalyptic zombie game, right? So we're playing a game where the players are in the modern real world fleeing the zombie apocalypse. And I set it in Boston, because I know Boston. And one of the things I had in front of me was I actually had a laptop open with Google Maps in Street View. And I would just move it around in Street View and just describe what I saw, <laughs> except then I would oh. add the lens up. What would it look like in a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. And it worked really well, really well. Wow. Oh man, I, 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 don't drop that on me at the end of the show, Paul. That's dark, just blowing dark. my mind. Then, what are you doing? I'm totally remembering now. And then, and then, and then I gave them, I actually had, this is so old school, but I actually had an atlas. I had a, you know, a physical map atlas of yeah. Boston. And I just plunked that on the table. I was like, here's your map. <laughs> they roamed around Boston. Uh, that's, yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of that. That's killer. Yeah. Yeah. That's that great. worked really well. Wow. It worked really well. Wow. Wow. That's Damn, now I want to do that. Anyway, uh, great. Well, that about wraps up uh, this topic on using real world locations. I'm so glad I'm so glad we heard that as our conclusion. And if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with us, please do so in the comments below and we'll read them. And maybe that'll inspire future shows. Paul? <laughs> completely, completely. Now I got to do your part. No, no. What comes next? I have no idea. Uh, remember, now I'll also say that remember, you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, particularly if you're new to the channel. We are on YouTube and Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, TikTok. We have the handle Wandering DMs on all those places. So follow us there. You'll get updates on upcoming shows. Thank you for saving me. Uh, if you prefer. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so by visiting our website, wanderingdms.com, where you can find all those podcasts available for download and streaming. Also, you can listen to our podcasts on various third-party podcast carriers like iTunes and Spotify and uh, other places that I'm not remembering. If you're listening to this show right now on a third-party podcast carrier and they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That actually really helps us by informing other users uh, that we exist and brings them to the show, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And as usual, big thanks to the patrons who support the show. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms, and you'll see our different tiers with uh, access to discounts on our merch, uh, monthly behind-the-scenes stuff, and access to a private Discord server where the conversation continues all the time. And like Paul said at the top of the show, we'll be there in about 10 minutes to continue the conversation day. Maybe you've got some great ideas for real-world locations that, uh, that we didn't catch in the chat today. And it's uh, one of our favorite parts of the week. Uh, I think we're, I think we'll both have time to be there today. Is that right, Paul? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be there. Great, great, great. Uh, so other upcoming things on the channel. Uh, I don't know if you caught last Thursday's uh, Pool Radiance uh, play where... Um... I haven't seen it yet. No spoilers. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Tell us whatever you want. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Though. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot more giant snakes and a lot more poison. And I'll I'll just I'll just say that. And and the game continues. So I'll be back in two weeks. I'll be back in two weeks for more of that. But but coming up right this Thursday will be another book award game with uh, me and Dan Cullinan, and we'll continue to play test our uh, our high level play and our, how the terrain works and how the weather works and we're still ironing that out and testing it. So please join us and see how that works. And then we'll plan to be back uh, next week because we're live 
every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.